This is episode 13 of the Breaking Down Business Podcast. Welcome to Breaking Down Business, a podcast produced on behalf of the Kent State College of Business Administration by adjunct marketing instructor and CEO of All Good Marketing, Christopher Barnett. In this series, we connect listeners to our experts who share the latest on high-impact research and best practices in business. We bring relevant and timely business topics to you every other week. This is Breaking Down Business with your host, Chris Barnett. In this episode, hear from Chris Greening, Associate Professor of Marketing at Kent State on his recent research in corporate social responsibility and consumer behavior, and his recent first place win in the MENA case competition. He also discusses his approach to helping executive MBA students solve business problems in this episode. Dr. Greening's current academic research centers around investigating stakeholder influence on the financial outcomes of a firm. He examines different micro and macro level conditions through which customer satisfaction and corporate social responsibility affect firm value. He has published in the Journal of Marketing, Journal of Marketing Research, Journal of Business Research, and many more. He teaches marketing strategy courses at the undergrad and PhD levels and in the MBA and executive MBA programs. Prior to joining the faculty at Kent State University, Dr. Greening was a faculty member at the University of Missouri. In a previous career, Dr. Greening spent nine years working in the multimedia field at various tech firms in the San Francisco area. Dr. Greening, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. So it's an impressive background. Can you Begin by sharing a little bit about your background. Sure. So when I was an undergrad, I went to the University of California, San Diego, and I knew I wanted to do something with computers. I wasn't sure what. So I enrolled in a major called computer engineering, which had both hardware and software elements in it. And as I learned more about the field and the jobs and what excited me. I thought maybe artificial intelligence or computer graphics. So I got a cognitive science degree as well. And I interned at the supercomputer center in the digital data visualization um, department there and, and thought that's what I wanted to do. And so then I got a master's at the State University of New York at at Stony Brook in computer science, this time focusing on on software. And that launched my first career um, in the computer multimedia world and worked for more or less a a company a year. Uh, The companies would come and go, those sorts of things. And it was doing fine. I, I love San Francisco. It's a it's a great city, um, wonderful people. You know, you can't really say anything bad about it. I, w- I felt like I was stagnating in, in my career. I was, again, I was doing fine. There wasn't anything wrong per se. It just got a little rote, a little boring, and I wanted to shake things up. And so I thought maybe an MBA would change that. And at that time, the University of Pittsburgh was offering a one-year MBA program. Uh, so I went there, 
And one of the marketing professors gives this speech about becoming a college business professor. There were all these aspects about the job that seemed like the type of job that I wanted. And so I said, sign me up. <laughs> but then that launched my my academic career, sort of career number two. Right. Well, what led you to Kent State then? Kent State had a an opening that fit my qualifications. And so I started out as an assistant professor. Now I'm an associate professor. I came in and right away was teaching PhD student courses, working with PhD students, uh, taught a couple MBA courses and a bunch of undergrad courses. Nice. Now you are also doing a lot of research research focused on corporate social responsibility. So in the academic world, we tend not to ask questions like, would you purchase this product if it came from a socially responsible company? Or to what extent does social responsibility enter your day-to-day purchases? We leave that to polling groups. And so in the academic world, we tend to try to figure out if all else isn't equal, what may make you purchase a socially responsible product? Or when should firms engage in social responsibility? Or how much social responsibility should they engage in we tend to ask them much more from the bottom line (laughs) point of view of the firms. Instead, we say, is a firm in its industry, in its circumstances, with its characteristics, how much social responsibility benefits the firm? And then at certain points, are they misallocating the resources that they would devote towards social responsibility. And so misallocating means maybe they should have directed these resources somewhere else, such as maybe improving customer satisfaction or working on lowering costs or improving efficiency of the firm. Or perhaps those resources should be returned to shareholders of the firm to the investors like one of my papers does find that at a certain point there's an inflection point where if a firm does more csr the shareholders rewarded the firm value goes up but at a certain point the firm value stops going up as much and then at another point the firm value actually goes down a little bit So this is an indication that firms are over-allocating resources to social responsibility, that there's sort of a sweet spot, like do some, but don't go overboard. We think of the communication as signals to different stakeholder groups, where some can be the community some can be the employees, some can be the customers, some can even be government-related entities. You want to tell the government, we're a good player. (laughs) 
don't come in with additional taxes or regulations into our industry. Look, we're a good industry. So for instance, video games, they used to not have ratings on them. Right. And then Grand Theft Auto came out and and parents found out how in the world is my 10 year old purchasing this game? There ought to be a law. <laughs> and then the video game companies, they realized that if they didn't do something, the government would step in and mandate some sort of legislation, tie them up in red tape, and they didn't want this. So they voluntarily put ratings on their video games. And now the video game companies can say, look, we're being socially responsible. We're telling you, the parent, about the content of this video game so you know whether it's appropriate for your child. Interactions between the firm and government or signals to the government <laughs> that can be recast as social responsibility. One other project I'm working on, I, I monthly collect data on 51 business-to-consumer companies. So these are companies that we've all heard of, Coca-Cola, Tesla, Google, Amazon, Apple, these types of companies. So big name companies that everybody's heard of. I sort of track what people know about a company's social responsibility matches with activities that a company engages in. The research shows that there's not that much correlation between what people feel they know about a company's social responsibility and what a company actually does. I'm, I don't know whether it's surprising or not, but <laughs> that reality doesn't match with perception. But what isn't surprising is that the perception of firms drives consumer behavior, that they are more willing to purchase from a firm that they view as being socially responsible. And firm value correlates with that measure. So, of course, that doesn't make, um, sorry, that does make perfect sense. <laughs> our perceptions drive our actions and where our actions match, you know, affect companies, that affects their value. So right. It makes perfect sense there. Well, yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit. You, Sure. I, want to, I want to talk about a business case competition that uh, you recently placed first in with the by the William Davis Institute of Business. Yeah, so the William Davis Institute of Business is at the University of Michigan, and they're one of the premier places that publishes business cases. And they had this competition centered on the Middle East and North Africa region of the world and wanted cases that dealt with that area that were unique, that were specific to that area. Uh, but I worked with Dr. Ahmad Asadi while he was a PhD student here at Kent State. Um, he has contacts in that Middle East and North Africa region. And so we came across this company called Kareem, which is the Uber of the Middle East. And so we were able to come up with region-specific issues, such as the role of women, both in the workplace and 
their ability to travel outside the home. Issues like religious specific, like Ramadan, you're supposed to be fasting (laughs) throughout the day. How can you be driving a car (laughs) if you're not eating throughout the day? Government regulations are, of course, different there. Not all the countries there are democratic. Even the ones that are have various degrees of regulation over their businesses. It was surprising to learn that some countries, they actually run their own taxi fleets. So introducing a competitor to the taxi fleets you're basically introducing a competitor to the government. (laughs) And what makes a good business case is not handing, saying, here were the solutions to these issues, but more saying, here are the issues, what should Kareem do? Um, At the same time, I think somewhat fortunately for us, Kareem was purchased by Uber. <laughs> we were were very fortunate. Congratulations! We the money that we we split between the the two of us, and we're yeah. and the honor and prestige of accomplishment. Yes, the so, University of Michigan was very happy. We're very happy, and and hopefully, students reading the case and in their courses now are are happy. Right. And and hopefully Uber's happy too, right? Well, you mentioned that, that this was a project that you did with a PhD student. And I know in your bio, you instruct not only PhD students and master's students. Can you talk a little bit about what that's like, the, the differences between teaching at each of those levels? So the undergrads I teach are at at the upper level, mostly seniors, a few juniors. And so by the time you get to that stage at Kent State, you're in classes typically of 25 students or fewer. This is the norm for upper division courses. So you get a a good student to teacher ratio. And it's the same with the master's level courses. But like I say, with PhD students, it's it's completely different. They take some classes their first couple of years in the but then after that they're working on their own research and I'm helping more on a one-to-one basis, guiding them through their research, helping them critically evaluate their research. So it's from helping them design experiments, pointing them towards literature to read. It's not so much run an experiment and if if the experiment turns out okay, then it gets published. (laughs) (laughs) That's only the, the first of many, many steps. You have to tell a good story. You have to say, why was it worth running this study to begin with? What did we learn from this study? What theory can be applied to this study? Can you reproduce the findings to this study? Why should the business world care about it? Why should academics care about it? Can you sustain my interest through reading this whole 
paper. Are you familiar with similar research and similar papers? Can you say how your research fits in with existing research out there? So many of those issues, I had no idea that you really had to address. So that's where I work with PhD students a lot. Now I don't teach MBAs anymore. I teach executive MBAs. And so a lot of what I try to do with the senior undergrads and executive MBAs is not so much like memorize this, but how to think about a problem. So how, how to approach a problem. So they have plenty of book learning by the time they appear in my classroom and they either still have their books or, you know, access to the internet to, to find out, um, you know, encyclopedia textbook type answers to questions, but sort of instilling in people a, a critical approach to solving a business problem. Um, this problem may be a bit simplistic, but it, I think it works well for our podcast. It, it's like when I ask undergrads, what's a competitor to Walmart? People will first say, oh, Target, Costco, um, Amazon. So they'll start with physical stores that sell similar products to Walmart, and then they'll touch on Amazon. So, oh, this is an online store that sells similar products to Walmart. But then I asked them, what does Walmart really stand for? What, what slogan do they use? And then the students will say something to the equivalent of low prices or everyday low prices. And, and then the conversation goes, all right, so if it's low prices, that's why you go to Walmart. You go to Walmart for the low prices. You go in, you don't see a fancy store. That's because they're not spending that much money on the store so that they can sell things to you at a low price. <laughs> you may not find a store employee in the aisle, but that's okay because they're not paying people to stand about in the store aisle so that they can save money and sell things to you at a low price. And then someone like while I'm explaining this, someone will all of a sudden like shout out Dollar General or Dollar Tree. They get it. They get this, this taking the step back. What is your company really doing and what are you focusing in on? If it's low prices, then for Walmart, some of the true competitors, yes, Target's a competitor. Yes, Amazon's a competitor. I, I grant you that. But stealing the mantle of the low price leader the dollar stores are trying to do that. Right. So that's a big competitor that doesn't come to mind right away. And so sort of the stepping back, more analyzing the problem, that's what I try to work on with students. Yeah, very cool. Well, you you were clear to differentiate between MBA, the MBA program and the executive MBA program, and that you serve the executive MBA program can you share a little about the difference between those? Yeah, no, yeah. Thanks for uh, bringing that back up. So the MBA program at Kent State, as it is 
in most places, students are either right out of undergrad or within their first couple few years when they go to pursue an MBA. Um, this works for many people. <laughs> However, it doesn't work for everybody. Some people are later in later stages of their career and they haven't been in school for a number of years. And so they wouldn't mind going to school with people who are at the same stage in their career and who are maybe the same distance from education. <laughs> but if you've been out of school for 10 years and, and now you're like 32, 33 or 15 or 20 years and you're in, in your 40s, you may not want to go back to school with a bunch of 22, 23-year-olds who <laughs> have just, you know, just a semester ago were undergrads sort of taking the same course almost. <laughs> right. You might not even be have had an undergraduate business degree. And so the executive MBA fills that role. So at Kent State, you have to have at least seven years of work experience post-undergraduate to get into the program. And there are a number of students who, like I said, have had 15 or 20 years. We've had people in their 50s. There are definitely plenty of people in their 40s, plenty of people on, on their third jobs, people with VP in front of their names. And in general, I think that's it again. There are plenty of really good undergraduate students. Um, I'll be the first to say that. I'm, I'm always pleasantly surprised. Um, and I don't have concerns about the future generation of America. <laughs> we're we're going to be just fine, everybody out there. Um, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. But the level of work ethic that the executive MBAs put into it is that never ceases to astound me <laughs> as well. <laughs> right. Now, I know that there are some other advantages of um, executive MBA program for that uh, take into account the fact that these people are working. Oh, yeah. So the classes are uh, 90, 95% of them are Saturday uh, and Sunday. There's occasional times where it might have to be a, a Friday evening, giving your time to complete your 40 to 60 hour work week during the week. But on the weekend, you you come in, there's breakfast waiting you, for you. There's lunch supplied to you on, on the days that you come in. Uh, we have guest speakers come and visit you, not only within class, but the program also brings in guest speakers. It sounds like it, that the students get a lot out of the program. Where can listeners learn more about the Executive MBA Kent State? Yeah, like everything nowadays, you just search for Executive MBA Kent State, and it will bring you right to the page with all sorts of information, bring you to a contact person, Lori Walker, L-A-U-R-I-E, then Walker.
I appreciate your time today. This was a really, a really fun discussion. We took a lot of twists and turns. <laughs> Likewise. Take care. All right. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to episode 13 of Breaking Down Business. Learn more about the Executive MBA program at Kent State at kent.edu forward slash executive MBA. Listen to more episodes of the podcast at kent.edu forward slash business forward slash podcasts. Thank you for joining us for Breaking Down Business, brought to you by the Kent State College of Business Administration, offering 10 undergraduate majors, online and in-person MBA programs, and a comprehensive PhD program. Learn more about the many ways to pursue a business education at Kent State at kent.edu forward slash business.